Stand Firm Conference 2023, hosted by Hope Reform Baptist Church in Underwood in partnership with Ascension Church in Spring Hill and Ormo, Reformation Church in Waco, and Hope Reform Baptist Church, Gold Coast in Helensville. Don't just sit on the bench. Check out the details of these churches in the description below and be active within a local church. May God bless and equip you for good works. Good morning, everybody. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to... I'm not going to tolerate that this morning, actually. Uh, there's probably too many Presbyterians who came out for Michael Foster, not enough Baptists. And for my liking, not enough pennies here, or at least you're not acting like it. Good morning, Stanford. That'll do. All right, you excited to be here? I am once again reminded of my weight. Thank you, gentlemen. As long as I'm not, as the great gospel singer uh, Oliver Anthony says, as long as I'm not 300 pounds and eating fudge grounds made by, uh, paid for by taxes. I'm fine. Uh, And uh, yes, our baby girl is literally on the way. We had about two hours of sleeplessness last night counting the contractions, and we were about three more contractions away from going to the hospital. So praise God, uh, he's kept her where she is for the moment. (laughs) And I will try not to excite joy too much by the preaching. In 1838... John Watsford was converted. In 1838 occurred the event of my life, for which I shall have to praise God long as the eternal ages roll. One evening, with one or two other young fellows, I went down to the Methodist Church, Macquarie Street, in Parramatta, New South Wales. Any Parramatta fans here? No, thank you. The Reverend D.J. Draper, what a name for an honorable reverend in the 1830s, D.J. The Reverend D.J. Draper was conducting a prayer meeting. I had no serious thought. Me and my friends went down to mock rather than to pray. What was said or sung, I don't know. All I know is that after after a while, a mighty power came upon me. The sins of my whole life pressed heavily on my soul. I trembled before God and thought that I should sink through the floor into hell. I tried to leave the church, but could not. No one came near me. After the service, I left my companions at once and ran away to my father's home. Just as I was about to pass through the gate, a strong hand was laid on my shoulder, and one who was a leader in the church said to me, My young friend, I've been thinking about you and praying for you. I could literally speak no word. My heart was too full. For I felt that God had sent him. I tore myself away from him and running into the house, went at once to my room and there I poured out my heart to God and cried to him for mercy for hours and hours. I continued pleading, but no answer came. I was afraid to go to sleep lest I should wake up in hell before the morning. That night and many a night after, I drew my little bed near the fireplace, and using its light, I set the candlestick to a mantelpiece, read and read and read my precious Bible until I fell asleep. Day after day, alone in my room, reading the Bible and praying to God to save me. For six long weeks, I was in this distress and bondage, and my poor mother thought I was going out of my mind. One day, how well I remember it, I went into an upper room and falling on my knees cried, Oh God, I cannot live another day like this. 
the load of my sin. The load of my sin is crushing me down into hell. Have mercy upon me and pardon all my sin for Jesus Christ's sake who shed his blood for me. And in a moment, I saw all my sins laid on Jesus and I laid hold of him as my present saviour. My chains fell off and my burden rolled away. Glory be to God. The witness of the Holy Spirit was so clear and distinct that I thought at the time God really spoke to me from heaven. Thy sins, which are many, are all forgiven thee. My joy was very great. It was joy unspeakable and full of glory. Our topic this morning is revival. Revival, when God awakens and explodes his church. This Australian, John Watsford, was converted in 1838. And we start with him because I think many people, like myself, up until I literally started researching for this, paper, for this address, would have believed the trope. Hands up if you've heard this. Australia's never seen a mighty revival. You heard that? How many of us have been told Australia was from its beginning intentionally, historically, purposefully secular, our religious, non-Christian. It was, it was just non-religious in its founding and its ground from the beginning up. Many of us have heard that. Well, first of all, on the second one, our constitution was actually written, yes, with lots of freedom of religious expression, but... In the preamble to our constitution was written after a lot of social pressure on the, on the writers of the, of the constitution. It includes a, uh, 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 that we of the different states, etc., etc., humbly relying on the blessing of the almighty God. Which God were they talking they about? They were talking about the Christian God. They were Catholics and Protestants, half of them. The Christian God, the triune God, was recognized in our constitution. This isn't a case for Christian, Australian Christian nationalism. This is saying there was an intentional evangelical mindset among many of the first settlers and colonists. And secondly, Australia, in fact, has a rich history of revivals and moves of the Spirit. Did you know that? We have a rich history you can basically take it up until the 1950s of this continual sprinkling and outpouring of the Spirit at different times in our history. The, the Second World War really had a, a, a damaging effect to the Australian religious mind, although there was some in indigenous communities after that. It is true to say Australia has not had a revival, if by that we mean Australia as a whole has not experienced this, has not been swept up as a whole into the self-same move and revival of the Spirit, like the Great Awakening in America or something like that. That's true, but we have come under the influence of the Spirit's reviving and awakening work in large measures. 1840, John Watsford had become an evangelist and a preacher and the leader of prayer meetings. And he was somewhat, as his, his spiritual forefathers, the Wesleys, had sort of come to be known, he was a bit of a radical. They, they didn't like him a lot. And in fact, there was a, a local minister who had specifically asked that he cause, no, this is Reverend Walker, that he does not cause any or say anything bad about him or cause any problems within his church where he had started attending. He, he saw him at the door and he got the deacon to remind him, shut up. 
Don't say that our pastor is unconverted. Don't start talking about how we don't preach the gospel enough. Stop talking about how we need the spirit to come down. Enough of that. We're a good, polite, well-behaved church. Well, he was saved in 1838. And then in 1840, John Wattsford started gathering with a couple of uh, friends, most of them women at that time who were attuned to the, the, the prayer and wanting to see God work. They gathered with him and they started praying uh, privately every morning, every lunchtime, and every evening. They'd made a pact to pray for revival in their community. And in, on Fridays, they would fast and gather together to pray for revival. He says this after a season of uh, Friday, uh, after four weeks of this, on Sunday evening, the Reverend William Walker, who doesn't like Wattsford, at the end of the fourth week, on a Sunday evening, Reverend William Walker preached a powerful sermon. That, that sounds like surprising to him. Some of you guys know what that's like. You go to church, he actually preached, like he got some energy today. He raised his voice a bit. He, he said the gospel. Sometimes that is sadly surprising. After the service, the people flocked to the prayer meeting until the schoolroom was filled. My two friends were there, each on one side of me, and I knew that they had a hold of God. We could hear sighs and suppressed sobs going on all around us. The old minister of the circuit who had conducted the meeting was concluding with the benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God here he stopped and sobbed aloud. In between his sobbing, when he could finally speak, he called out, Brother Wattsford, pray. John Wattsford said, he got up and he prayed. And then his two friends prayed. And oh, he writes, oh, the power of God that came upon the people who were overwhelmed by it in every part of the room. And what a cry for mercy. It was heard by passers-by in the street, some of whom came running into the church to see what was the matter with all these people screaming for mercy from God. And they were struck down at the door in great distress of soul. The clock of a neighboring church struck 12 before we even looked at the time. And we did not leave the meeting for many hours. How many were saved, I cannot tell. But day after day and week after week, that work went on and many were converted. Among them, many young persons. This is the work of the Spirit, not in Wales, and not in New York, not in, not in uh, uh, New Hampshire and the areas of the Great Awakening, in Australia, in New South Wales, of all places. The God of the impossible. In 1860, this is 20 years later, he's still a revivalist and he writes this to a congregation which packed the building I preached from quench not the spirit and what a time we had. The whole assembly was mighty moved. The power was overwhelming. Many fell to the ground in agony and there was a loud cry for mercy. The police came rushing in to see what was the matter but there was nothing wrong. There was nothing for them to do. People were penitent and crying to the Lord. It was impossible to tell how many penitents came forward. There must have been at this meeting over 200. Imagine a gathering where this many people are coming to the front requesting prayer and mercy from God. 
The large schoolroom was completely filled with anxious inquirers seeking salvation for their souls afterwards. That's just the people who weren't sure that they received salvation in the meeting. 200 people converted, walking out with the joy of salvation, and a whole room full of people inquiring, seeking salvation from the sins that pressed them down into hell. When you recount and listen to and read revival uh, stories and accounts, there's just a hunger that builds in you, isn't there? A sense that, oh Lord, do it again. What would you not give to be able to live in a generation and a time when hundreds and innumerable thousands are rushing into church, are packing out the pews, and are giving their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, many committing to missions. Sinclair Ferguson says, it's always the account that when I read accounts of revival and I am drawn to preach on them, I come away realizing, I don't think I've ever worshipped God truly before. You come away with this sense. You you read, the John Watsford says, my friends had a hold of God. And you say, I don't think I've ever prayed before in my life. If that's prayer, I don't think I've ever preached before. I I read the the power of the Spirit striking people, even to visible manifestations. They're falling on the ground and calling for mercy from the Lord Jesus. I I don't think I've ever preached before. Australia needs this kind of revival. Can we amen that? Australia needs this kind of revival. Queensland needs this revival. Your church needs this kind of revival. My church desperately needs this kind of revival. Steady growth is no replacement for spirit-born revival. Uh, a really steady plateau because we've, we were at about 90% building capacity and the vibes were good this morning and a few new people showed up and we've got some new, new members coming in next month and a baptism at the end of the year. That's just not enough. 200 people in a single evening and that happening for weeks on end in Watsford Experience in Australia. What is Revival. Jonathan Edwards, who uh, was one of the main leaders and and preachers of the Great Awakening back in 1741, Uh, maybe if you don't know him or know much history of the Great Awakening, you'll at least probably have heard of the, the most famous sermon, it seems, at least in American history, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Have you heard of that? Edwards preached that sermon in 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut, and the effects were enormous, and it was one of the great catalysts for the Great Awakening that was sweeping North America. What is revival? Here's my working definition. Uh, Revival is a work of the Spirit of God where he converts souls to faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and he brings an awakening of new fervor into the church so that he grows the church considerably and impacts a community's moral living and Christian influence, all in response to the preaching of Jesus. The work of the Spirit of God, because he's sovereign, he converts people, he awakens the church to their sin, to eternity, to the power of the gospel, and he, he grows the church and increases the gospel's influence in the community. Uh, uh, Edwards wrote a book called The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. And he had to do this because in the Great Awakening, there were, there, well, there were 
thousands of new converts. And just for the, for the criti critical types in our room, do you know what new converts act like? New converts. Yeah, the people who just started walking with Jesus a couple of seconds or days ago, they usually don't act like people who've been walking with Jesus for 20 years. So here's what happens in revival, is the critical uh, disciplinarians and the, the real reform types start getting really annoyed at how many of these people are, are misbehaving in church and, and being a little bit uh, 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 exuberant in their behavior or their emotions, or they go home and they're, st they're still doing things that are, are not, uh, not very Sabbatarian or whatever it may be. You go, yeah. That's because Jesus just saved them. You're pointing out the wrong thing. The Pharisees got really annoyed that the healed guy was carrying his mat on the wrong day. I think you missed the point that the lame guy is carrying something. You missed it. When revival happens, strange things often happen. And Jonathan Edwards started writing because, uh, partly because his wife was having trances. Conversations with Jesus, she told. Visions, dreams going the whole night long where she's just walking and talking with God. Now, that's really awkward when you're a cessationist pastor. That's a little bit awkward. So, so he starts uh, having to sort of defend to, to, the, to the criticisms of, of many other people uh, that this really is a work of God, even though there's people being thrown to the ground, even though people are, are clinging to their chairs and to the pillars and screaming out loud in the middle of the sermons. Like, yeah, lots of weird stuff is happening. That, that doesn't mean it's false. He, he, he wrote this book with a list of things that are neither here nor there. They don't prove it to be a work of the Spirit of God, but they don't disprove it either. I and mean, here's some of the things that he said. Uh, 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 things like extreme displays of emotion. That, that could be because the Spirit's working in people's hearts. And guess what? Their hearts include their emotions. Or it could be that people are just getting excited by a really, really charismatic preacher. Spurgeon used to say, when God moves through town in a work, it's like a horse-drawn carriage that, that stirs up all kind of dust. It happens. But that doesn't mean that if we were to grab our brooms, hungry for a work of God, and then go start sweeping the dust and get a big dust cloud, that, that's not the same thing. Some people try that. So, so emotional uh, uh, exuberance is not, is not uh, a sign against it or for it. He said strange phys physical manifestations in the services, not an argument for or against. Much noise and attention about it in the community. People writing papers and criticizing. Everybody's talking about it. It seems like bad press. Not a sign for or against. He would speak of the, uh, uh, the, the sin that was present and rash behaviors by new converts. And he says, you know, new believers act like new believers. We can get over that. And satanic activity. How often people will jump in and go, uh, it's, it's like pretty obvious or it's very evident that, that Satan literally was doing that thing. Or somebody, you know, there's demonic work going on in this revival word that they're calling a revival. That's a sign against it. And you go, why? Let's assume you're right. Let's say, yeah, that was literally satanic activity happening. Somebody stood up, cursed Jesus, claimed they had a prophecy of, of, of Jesus not being God, whatever. Yeah, okay, let's call it satanic. I want to know why he's focusing so much of his attention on this move. Probably because it's legitimate and he's threatened. So satanic activity is not even uh, an argument for or against a real revival. Here's what, here's what Edward said. He says, the five marks of a, spirit, of a work of the Spirit of God is that number one, it exalts Jesus. In the preaching, in the conversation, in, in the theme of the whole movement, it exalts Jesus Christ. As God become man, died for sinners, resurrected, King and Lord, reigning forever. 
Jesus. It exalts Jesus. Secondly, it attacks Satan's interests. Now, that would be specific to times and places. Revival in Australia had certain elements that that were not necessary in Wales or America. It attacks whatever main forces Satan is bringing uh, uh, against the church at that time and place. He says, thirdly, it exalts Holy Scripture as the authority. It exalts Scripture as the authority and the powerful Word of God. It doesn't distract from it as if we were about truth before, but now we have spirit, so we need less truth. Fourthly, he said it lifts up doctrine. A revival will always leave people hungry for understanding categorical and propositional truth from Scripture. And fifthly, it promotes love of God and love of man. That means the behavior of people religiously and the behavior of people towards their neighbors will be changed. It will have moral change on the society that it strikes. And that, that leads to a discussion of Reformation, which Michael Foster's gonna, got to speak about. Reformation is changing structures and ways of doing things, often in an institutional way in our churches. But revival is the renewal and outpouring of life. Now, we need both. Because if you, have, you try and have a reformation and set up structures, it, it's just dead formalism. It's not a replacement. And if you have an outpouring of, of life and a renewal and a revival, but you don't have some kind of reformation, let's, let's buffet this with clear teaching from Scripture and discipleship and the means of grace and church membership. And, and these, if we don't have that, then, the, then the, the outpouring becomes a large puddle and dries up quickly. It's not channeled. It's lost. We need both. R.C. Sproul, writing of the, the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, he said, the Reformation was not just a Reformation. It was an awakening. That's his word for revival. But it was not just an awakening. It was the greatest awakening since the apostolic age. I was speaking to a renowned church historian, theologian, and academic. He goes by the name of uh, Charles Spurgeon, no, Craig Spurgeon Ireland, I think is his, uh, his name. He's co-authored a book with uh, Charles Spurgeon, apparently. And we were talking, like, has anybody ever tabulated the amount of individual souls converted during the Reformation? Like, we love the doctrine, we love the institutes, thank God for the, for the creeds and confessions. But has anybody ever tabulated the souls one? And, and it's so hard to do because of the, the way things were counted and the different ways of viewing uh, a, a, a Reformation and revival in the time. But it has to be north of the millions. The millions in the Reformation brought to light. We need both. Edward said that a revival is an intensifying, accelerating, extending of God's ordinary work in individual hearts. Let's break that down a little bit. It's the intensifying, accelerating, extending of God's ordinary work in individual hearts. First thing, revival is God's work. Whether it's John Watsford himself alone being saved, reading the Bible, pleading for mercy from the Lord Jesus Christ, revival broad or individual only, only ever happens by God's sovereign work. Revival is a work of God's sovereign spirit. Jesus said this, John chapter 3, you can't go outside and command wind to come because your laundry is not drying. No one can go out. I just walked in the car park of the hotel this morning. We're not the only conference in town. I passed a Kenneth Copeland Ministries minivan. Those guys know how to control the weather right? 
he'll tell you that you can, you can blow against the, 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 the COVID demon or, or, or command a storm so that the private jet can take off in the right conditions. Okay, some of us can do that. The rest of us, we can't control the weather. And Jesus says, nor can you with the Spirit. God's got a, a, a plan for all of salvation history, the history of redemption, Edwards called it. We, 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 we call it theologically the history of redemption. God has marked out every day and every person's salvation that he plans to save. It is entirely his work. No one can bring dry dead bones to life, breathing an army of God except for the sovereign spirit of God. Revival is a work of God. But, or and, the spirit of God uses means. <clears throat> Edward says, it's the, it's the work of God in individual hearts. Now, this is, this, is, this is interesting because he doesn't just say the spirit of God is working on communities. Because in a very strict theological sense, communities aren't Christian and they can't be saved. Churches can't even be saved. Nations can't be saved in a very strict theological sense. They can't be Christian in the sense of regenerated. They can be Christian in, in conviction, in commitments, in, in culture, and in beliefs. And they should be to God's glory. But, but, but he, like Spurgeon, uh, uh, will say that the way the kingdom grows is always one brick at a time on the path to heaven or in the building of the heavenly temple of the kingdom of God. It's always one soul at a time. That doesn't mean only one person can get saved at a time. It means that if you have enormous change and, and the society is swept up and the whole church is alive, but, but no one has repented and given their life to Jesus, it's not a revival. The, the, the kingdom didn't grow even one soul. So the kingdom grows in individual souls as the counting metric. Edwards also says that it is the intensification, acceleration, and extending of God's ordinary work. People often think, uh, maybe you read The Great Awakening, you look at the Welsh Revival, you look at what happened in Watsford's life, and you think, what revival is, is this, this breath of fresh air, this refreshing drink of extraordinary water for people who are just so bored of preaching and praying and sacraments and church and evangelism. You know, sometimes the Spirit comes and He does crazy things like, like dreams and visions and trances and these, and these experiences, and that's revival. No! Revival is God's work in the ordinary things in extraordinary ways. So you know what revival is? It's literally just still preaching the gospel, expounding the word, joining for prayer, doing the sacraments, disciplining unbelievers of, uh, out of the midst, uh, uh, speaking God's truth to society and, and doing that week by week. It's God's ordinary work given extraordinary power. But I would want to say, I think you read the New Testament and we should define the extraordinary power as the ordinary. We're just used to extraordinary powerlessness and faithlessness, and unbelieving prayer. So we've, we've normalized the lack of power, so when the Spirit does stuff that he does on just about every page of the New Testament, we go, wow, something extraordinary. So it's ordinary things done with extraordinary power, 
and it's accelerated, so it happens faster than usual, what we're used to. It's an intensification, Edward says, so there's emotions, there's extreme uh, situations that may happen, and, and particularly uh, overwhelming conversions, and it's an extending. It happens in, a, in an area, and then it starts bleeding out. I love this, uh, this theme that you see, and as a reform guy, it sounds weird, but, but it happens every revival. People take the revival home, like, like as, if, as if they're at the revival, and they leave, and they go back to their home, or their village, or their community, and revival starts there, as if it's contagious. Now, it's not, but it entirely is, and I can't, so I'm just going to leave that there. It's not contagious, because that sounds odd, but it, it is, because that's how the Spirit works. He, he, it can be carried place to place, and that's what he meant by the extending. That's how every revival happens. The gospel brings people to life with the Spirit of God, and then they go back home, and the words they learned from God, they speak, and other people are converted and saved and swept into the kingdom. So we don't need new systems. We need the old, old word faithfully preached. We need the old, old gospel just let loose onto our congregations and communities. We need prayers offered in faith, people discipled, sacraments done, church, deci- church discipline done ordinarily, all in God-honoring ways. And, and that's, that's Elijah building the altar, right? A, a lot of people will say, well, well, revival is so much a work of God's sovereign spirit. We're not, we're not Phineasts. Right, we went to Charles Finney and, and these revivalists who think that they can plan a revival Thursday, 8 p.m. at church. Be there. And if we do certain things, God will say, well, they, they're checking all the boxes. Spirit, go on, you know, do your work. They make it happen. We can't do that. And we know we can't do that. So people say, so what can we do? The fire has to come down from heaven. There was nothing Elijah could have done to, to bring the fire from heaven to consume the, the sacrifice on the altar. Yeah, okay, but he did build the altar, didn't he? He showed by his work that his faith was genuine in God's ability to do so, and that's what we can do. We can at least put the altar together and not sit around going, if God wants to send the fire, he'll, he'll, he'll construct an altar himself and send the fire. We have been given responsibility. Ordinary things done in extraordinary ways. This is true of every revival that has been genuine in history. Do you have a hunger for this? Don't you just wish, whether you can fit it into your theological net or mess or back cupboard or whatever it is at all, don't you secretly, and I hope not secretly, want more than anything for there to be this kind of revival in Australia, in your community, in your street at least, Can you imagine the effects? Every revival leaves the community changed. Can you imagine the effects in Australia? If even just the nominal Christians who tick, yes, I'm a Christian on the census, if they got genuinely saved, which is 43.9% of Australia, it's 11.27 million people in Australia say, I'm a Christian. They're not opposed to the idea of believing the gospel. Now, it's nowhere near that. It's nowhere near that of genuine born-again believers. Almost half our population, are you kidding? It's not that. But if even just those people got converted, we would have a conversion metric of over 11 million people in, the, in a moment. Can you imagine every church, your church, I, I don't know everybody's church, but picture yourself Sunday morning, whatever it looks like, wherever you sit in your usual seat in the, in the auditorium and you're looking up at the, the pulpit or lectern or glass plexi thingy that your church has. Imagine every seat was filled to the brim. There's, there's literally, there's dozens and hundreds of people you've never seen before. 
Imagine that. Imagine that your pastor preaches one hour. Hope, imagine that. Couldn't. Imagine he preached an entire hour, and this happens in revivals, sits down and people demand he keeps on going. Why'd you stop so early? We've got a whole day committed to the Lord. Keep preaching. Imagine if you prayed, if your church had prayer meetings five nights a week, often until midnight, 2 a.m., and you just went from prayer meeting to work in the morning. That's not uncommon in these accounts of revival. Imagine if, if at work, people were just talking about it. And people are mentioning the, the, the preaching they heard on the way. And, and people you didn't even know had ever heard the gospel are starting to talk about the guilt of sin that they feel. And, and the chatter is just everywhere. Imagine at the, at the staff room, the, it's the subject of conversation. And people are discussing this. this, this these Christians are all getting excited. And, and my cousin, he, he's now one of those born-again people. I don't know what that means. Imagine that at the shops and in the schools, there's, there's spontaneous prayer meetings and groups all praising God. Imagine that there was baptisms literally every Sunday service and it extends out your worship until long after lunch. Imagine that. Imagine the amount of new converts that you and all of your Christian brothers and sisters that talk so much about discipleship are literally run off your feet trying to explain to them how to interpret the Bible, pray, stop sleeping with all of these people, commit their life in these areas, here's what you do and don't do with, with money, and here's your work. Imagine that the disciples were just in your congregate, which I hope is all of you, grassroots soul winners, would just run off your feet meeting new people and helping them understand the Bible. And what would the effect on an Australian culture be? Some of these are examples from past revivals in Australia. Some of them... I'm imagining as what we would need, the effects would surely be a drop in alcoholism and party drugs. Abortion rates would plummet. Wives would stop being beaten by their husbands. Porn, which is so rampant, and fornication, which is literally expected and normal, would die out. Gambling would, would just all about cease. The suicide rates of our young people and our men and our women would, would, would take a drastic drop. And our work ethic in our communities would increase. This is what has happened in other revivals. Could Australia see such a thing today? Don't you wish that Australia could see such a thing Today. In 1859, we got close. This was James Taylor and uh, Thomas Spurgeon, which was the, the, the son, well-named son of Charles Spurgeon. He was in Australia as an evangelist. He didn't want to be an evangelist. He was, a, he was a, 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 some other kind of profession, but they got him to start preaching, and then it never stopped. Thomas Spurgeon and James Taylor, they got close in 1859 to a revival uh, across multiple states. Uh, in 1889 to 1912, uh, we got pretty close to a nationwide revival. This was, anybody know R.A. Torrey? He, he, was, he was in Australia and he was an evangelist. They were doing the old-fashioned tent meetings. And they, they were marching across Australia and doing these. In these tent revivals, they counted 25,000 people were saved over these years. They marked that bad debts were being paid. People who were stealing money from people through, through loans. They were paying them off. They were giving an honest day's work in their jobs, the church attendance skyrocketed and their language became pure. 
It, it happened here before it happened in Wales, if you're aware of this story. It happened in Australia first that in the mines, the ponies, the pit ponies they call them, they stopped obeying the, the workers because the pit ponies didn't understand their, 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 their blue-collar uh, workers' language because they weren't swearing. So they have to retrain the donkeys, the asses, to understand a non-swearing language. Can you imagine how many apprentices, the asses of our day, who, who, who are sitting there? If revival hit Australia, and they're li- trying to listen to their chippy, listen to the builder, to the foreman, and they don't understand what he's saying because he's not dropping F-bombs every second word. He's, like, he's speaking a different language. It's, it's like that. Imagine. Then we got very close again in the 1950s with The Mission to the Nation by Alan Walker. I'm just mentioning stuff that you guys can go home and study and look up again. In the 1950s with Alan Walker, which the evangelistic mission climaxed with the arrival of Billy Graham coming in 1959 when 25% of the entire continent's population heard Billy Graham speak in person. A quarter of the nation attended an evangelistic rally at least once. Then they, there was a marked, you can even look today on the ABS, I went and checked this, the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Illegitimate childbirths are rising with the population, and in 1859 and 60, plateau off. Alcoholism and the alcohol uh, uh, purchasing rates are climbing with the population. They plateau off in 1859-60 and a few following years before it starts building again. Crimes plateau off in 1859-60 in Australia. It's amazing what God can do when he pours out revival. 1.25% of the entire Australian population gave their life to Jesus Christ during the Billy Graham crusade of 1859. 1.2, that doesn't sound big, but when there's a few million people, that's enormous. To even, to even measure on the scales above a percent is ridiculous. And, and, then, and then there was an amazing work in 1979 in the Elko community of the indigenous Australians. And, and this was a, 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 a community that had been torn apart by domestic violence, by divorce, illegitimate children. Uh, alcoholism and petrol sniffing had just ruined the youth of the day. And there was a small prayer meeting that was gathering and, and it just started growing. Preaching the gospel, praying. Preaching the gospel, praying. Until it grew to over 200 people and it became every single night to late in the evening, late in the, early in the morning for weeks and months. There was spontaneous worship happening on the, on the streets of the town. Young people would see each other in the street and they just start singing their favorite hymn, praising Jesus. People were getting saved. A lot of the nominal Christians were getting converted and there was a near total cessation of alcoholism, drunkenness and petrol sniffing. People started giving uh, their full work, uh, their, their work, their full effort, and the community thrived. And then male leaders started coming back to the church and taking responsibility because there was only women in the church before that. <clears throat> and then, and then it's travel also to Roper River and another indigenous community because these indigenous Australians read the read the act, the Book of Acts, and they go, "Oh, these Christians, they they trusted in Jesus and they walked somewhere else and told them." Well, my mob's back in another part of the country. I'm going to go walk there and tell them. And revival broke out there as well. 
One example in Roper River, where, where half of the town, which has been destroyed by alcoholism and petrol sniffing, half of the town was converted and added to the church. Australian missionaries were then, uh, uh, were also, uh, this is a, a strange note here, but Australian missionaries were used and had quite a hand in the Korean revival of 1907, the greatest Pentecostal power revival that I think has ever occurred in history. That's, that's at least on my reading. And here's the reason there was so much of it in Australia was because we were under the intentional influence of the great, first and second great awakenings of England. The first fleet came out in 1788 and the first and second great awakenings were going on between 1730 and 1840. There was intentional Methodists, the Wesleyans, revivalistic evangelists, they were intentionally sending people to Australia so that there would be a strong evangelical consciousness and evangelism going on among all of the convicts and the early settlers. You know William Wilberforce. Have you heard of William Wilberforce? William Wilberforce abolished the slave trade and eventually freed slaves in England and in the empire of the, of the British Commonwealth. But his first act in politics before his fight against slavery was actually to make sure that chaplains were sent to Australia. And the first fleet, uh, uh, the, the, the Australians who came on the first fleet were still talking about the Great Awakenings going on back home. They were aware of it. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, who was a slave trader, who was converted, who was the pastor of William Wilberforce, he personally put forward Richard Johnson as the chief evangelist and chaplain to go to Australia. And he wrote a poem. John Newton. He's like, he's now Australian heritage for us. Let's just claim him like we do with all the good New Zealand uh, celebrities too. He's one of that. The, the great Australian, John Newton, when he sent Richard Johnson over to Australia, he wrote him a poem. He says this. The Lord who sends thee hence will be thine aid. In vain at thee the lion danger roars. His arm and love shall keep thee undismayed on tempest-tossed seas and savage shores. Go, bear the Saviour's name to lands unknown. Tell the southern world his wondrous grace. In energy divine thy words shall own and draw their untaught hearts to seek his face. Richard Johnson was the first preacher of the gospel to ever be on Australian shores, and he preached Australia's first sermon out of a Psalm 116, verse 12. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits unto me? A zealous revivalist and evangelist. Charles Middleton, the naval officer who oversaw the first fleet of convicts coming out, the naval officer was an evangelical Christian that was put forward because of his strong religious beliefs. Usually, slave ships and convict ships were known lemons. Most of them sink on the, ship, on the seas and people die. That's just accepted. Charles Middleton made sure that all of the ships going to Australia would keep their souls safe, would be populated with chaplains, and would be safe no longer than six years old, safe to get these souls to Australia. Over 1,400 people were on the ships. Only 48 died. That is unbelievable for their day, and it's because he was an evangelical Christian who wanted to care for them. In fact, they weighed in fatter when they got to Australia than when they left. How's that? Because he cared for their souls. His wife was converted under the preaching of George Whitfield. 
Australia has a rich heritage of Christian revival. We are, I believe, rightly called the great Southland of the Holy Spirit. Do you know where that comes from in history? Australis means, you know, the southern land. There was a Portuguese explorer, Pedro Fernandes de Quiros, and he said this. There, on the day of Pentecost, 1606, he planted his flag and spoke of the destiny of Australia and prophetically claimed that the region to the south, Australasia, the great Southlands of the Holy Spirit. Australia del Espiritu Santo. He said there that day on the day of Pentecost, let the heavens and the earth and all those present witness that I, Captain Perdo Fernandez de Quiros, in the name of Jesus Christ, doth hoist the emblem of the Holy Cross on which Jesus Christ was crucified and whereon he gave his life for the ransom and the remedy of the world. On this southern pole, in the name of Jesus, from which now I shall be, shall be called now the southern land of the Holy Ghost. I do take possession of all this part of the south in the name of Jesus, and it will forever and always be known by this name to the end of all nations, that all natives in all these lands may know the holy and sacred evangel, which may be preached zealously and openly. He spoke prophetically in that moment. Now, unbeknownst to him, he was actually standing on Vanuatu, which he thought, yeah, kind of kills the story which he thought spread to the Southern Pole because their physics and astronomy had said there's probably, to balance out the globe, sorry, flatties, uh, to balance out the globe, there's probably land on the other pole. And so they went and they found it. He was standing on Vanuatu. He meant Australia. That's what he spoke of. And so there is and has been a great Southland revival. Commenting on Matthew 24, 14, which says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, Calvin wrote, uh, sorry, he addressed the, 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 the criticism of this, the objection, how could these words of the Savior be true when to this day not even the slightest report concerning Christ has reached the Antipodes, meaning the great south land? Unmoved, Calvin declared that every naysayer will one day be proven wrong and that indeed the gospel will maintain its ground till it be spread throughout the whole world. They hadn't even discovered Australia at that time. I love Calvin. But we don't believe in this because of Calvin. We don't believe that Australia belongs to Jesus because some Portuguese guy held up a flag with a cross on it and said, now it belongs to Jesus. Prophetic, yes. True, yes. Did Jesus need his permission to take control of Australia? No. No, he purchased it by his blood. He rules over it as Lord. We believe not because some man claims dominion, but because the God-man claims dominion over Australia. And it has been ordained by the Father that the gospel will be preached here. He said to Jesus, the Father said to Jesus in Psalm 2, I, to, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven: 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. We sit in a nation 
that has seen revival, that has known the evangelical influence. But will you do the best in the worst days to pray for God's revival? In 1652, there was a church built in an old uh, Yorkshire town, and there's a tablet on the wall that has this inscription. In the year 1652, when through England all things sacred were either profaned or neglected, this church was built by Sir Robert Shirley, whose special praise it is to have done the best of things in the worst of times and to have hoped them in the most calamitous. That's what we must be. We're not in the worst of times, but we will be ready for it. We will do the best of things in the worst of times, and at least a start to that is praying that God would send his spirit to our nation. Let's pray. Father God, we know nothing of this taste of revival. None of us can, can speak of these experiences in our own, in our own churches or communities. We, we know nothing of, of what we're really even asking for. We don't even know the cost that it's going to carry, and it will be huge. We will have to repent of so much sectarianism, criticism, so much of our individualism, of our worldliness, of our laziness and lethargy in the church, of our, of our lack of even caring if people get saved. We have so much to repent of. And were you to send revival, I'm certain our churches could not handle it. But would you do it, Lord God? We don't know the cost that, we're, that we would have to face, but we know that your spirit, if he would be so, so pleased to give souls to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would raise up leaders and churches to disciple them, to preach to them. He would humble us the way we need to be humbled so that we can usher in and and be faithful stewards to the work of the Spirit in this way. And we ask humbly, not because of who we are, but because of your own name and glory. And we ask not by our own might, and we know it is not by power, but it is by the Spirit alone, says the Lord of hosts, that your temple is built. And we do ask God that amongst all things that we do, as we stand firm and take action, that we would not neglect to pray and beseech and to take hold of God. Would you give Jesus these nations that he has died for? We pray this in his name. And everybody said, amen. Amen.